welcome to the fourth ever Trinity College Dublin Talks podcast. I'm Tom Malloy and, and with me today is Michelle Hallahan, who is the Sustainability Advisor for Trinity College Dublin. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Michelle has uh, been with Trinity College for a couple of years now, and it's been very interesting to watch, Michelle, how what you've been doing has kind of raised interest in the environment, but also how the public as a whole is just becoming more and more interested in this topic every day. I mean, only this week here in Trinity, you've launched a, a new kind of cup to get rid of paper cups together with DCU and, and Dublin City Council. Last week, Trinity was named as uh, the 10th best university in the world for climate action in one of these many rankings that, that go on in university life. But we're here to kind of talk about, I suppose, bigger issues Let's start, though, a little bit, Michelle, with how it is that you became interested in, in sustainability. Because I think you know, it's fair to say you became interested 20, 30 years ago, long before it became a fashionable topic. What, what, what was the moment uh, that, that kind of switched you onto this, or was it a long kind of process? Um, well, the first thing I remember, I grew up in the countryside, so I was always out playing in the fields and climbing trees and whatnot. And I remember as a child, age five, my mother coming home for the first time with a plastic bottle of milk. And I remember feeling that there was something inherently wrong with that. First time I'd ever seen a plastic bottle of milk, not a glass bottle. Um, and then years later, I actually signed up to the campaign for nuclear disarmament <laughs> when I was 11. Remember <laughs> that, kids? <laughs> I paid a membership and signed up to it, and I used to get their um, whatever their quarterly uh, newspaper, um, you know, and that that kind of was a, a, a sl- like slamming up against a wall to find out how much bad stuff was going on in the world, you know. Um, and then I joined Greenpeace later on as a, a elder teenager and started to learn. But you're still down the country here. You, oh yeah, kind still of, living I mean, in the countryside. Not too many people are members of Greenpeace. Uh, no. Was this kind of after Mitron blew up the ship, Rainbow Warrior, or was this kind of... I think uh, it was beforehand. Beforehand. It was in yeah. secondary mm. school, yeah. Mm. So, um, but, uh, but anyway, I subsequently I ended up working for Greenpeace um, as a volunteer when I came out of college, when I graduated as my master's in environmental science at Trinity. And I but you did do environmental science. I so did, yeah. It's pretty deep at this stage already. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, mean, I was I mean, how many people were there in your class at the time? Um, in the master's, there was 11 people. So it was, I think it was the eighth year they had done it. So it wasn't, it was relatively new still. Um, but, um, you know, and, and even within my natural sciences class, there was a lot of people did botany or zoology and... Those were two favourite topics of mine, um, but I was always, on some, in some regards, I was, I was still the radical, if you like. I would be concerned about things, but, you know, remember back then, we didn't have any recycling on campus back then. So pe- we weren't even aware of recycling mm. to start mm. off with. But um, anyway, subsequently, I volunteered it with uh, Greenpeace for about six months and then ended up moving over to London. I worked for Greenpeace International proper with the international oil campaigner, Paul Horsman, who had been out in... Um, Kuwait when Saddam Hussein had set fire to all the oil fields and as they retreated they set fire to 200 oil wells Mm. which couldn't be put out for months Mm. on end and when I started digging into all the work that he was doing I realised that there was all this terrible stuff but it was a huge education for me um, to see how big and how corporate the environmental problem was so that that was a, a huge education for me coming out into the world. And um, how would you say your thinking has kind of evolved since then. You know, do you think that, uh, in retrospect, the environmental movement in the in the eighties and nineties, kind of broadly speaking, got it right, or did they miss a big picture? I mean, certainly, 
um, you know, there was a huge focus on the nuclear issue, which yeah. of course is kind of old hat now. People yeah. don't really talk about it much. But um, w what did we, what, what was going right there and what was going wrong there? Um, I think Greenpeace were getting it right, honestly. Um, mm. When I look back and see how awakened they were and how conscious they were of what was going on and what the problems were, and they were getting right to the root of it. It was really, it was capitalism gone crazy. And it mm. was big economic corporations that were handing off the payment, the pollution, if you like, to everybody else. So, and we've paid for that, so we continue to pay for that. Um, I think what was going wrong at the time was the, the amount of shock. So people would find out about environmental issues they'd kind of go into a state of shock, they'd react with anger and protests, and that doesn't go down well, well with most people in society. We want to be encouraged, we want to be inspired, we want to get involved in those ways. So I think it's evolved to the point now where people are really inspired. You have the whole zero waste movement mm. um, that most people, or many people, are intrigued by, and it's inspiring to see a woman hold up a jar, a glass jar, jam jar, full of bits of plastic, whatever, and say, this is my waste from one year of living. You know, when you see that, and you think, wow, that's doable, I could do that. So people get inspired in a different way nowadays, whereas years ago it was about, it was about fighting against the system, whereas now it's about reinventing things so that we can step out of the system, I think. Yeah, th that's very interesting, actually, isn't it? It's, it's true when you think about it. You can, you can either protest, which alienates most people, I suppose, or you can get to a situation today where there's very little protest. In fact, yeah. it's kind of remarkable how little protest there is considering the planet is being destroyed rapidly. But at the same time, many people are, are taking action. But although people are taking action, the problems seem to be a lot worse today than they were back then. I mean, do you think we, we kind of took a left turn? Um, were we right to stop protesting? Um, no, I think it just, you know, people, people just changed and evolved with the times and also um, th there was a lot of commentary, certainly within the media there was a lot of commentary at the time that was a backlash against uh, protesters. There was also a corporate backlash against it and even governments, there were some governments that really stamped down protest and didn't want it. Mm. To them it's bad news and bad publicity is, is uh, not what anybody wants. So I think there was, a, there was an effort to quell that. But um, I think... I think what, what we got wrong along the way is that we allowed capitalism to keep growing and growing and growing. And there, you know, there are some amazing corporations on the planet nowadays, like Seventh Generation or Ecover, that do the right thing. They manufacture products that don't have an impact on the environment or a substantial impact that are considerate for environmental issues. But the vast majority of corporations out there are out there primarily to make money and at any cost. And that's where we've gone wrong in the past 30, 40 years. We've allowed that to grow the priority is only to make money at the expense of everything. And so humans, not just humans, but all species on the planet are paying with the pollution that we have to live with. Not, not, notwithstanding your reservations about capitalism, you have set up a company <laughs> yourself. <laughs> and you know, you, you've advised kind of large, large companies in the States, and now, and now you're advising us here in Trinity, um, which I think is great. I think it's very interesting to, to think about the responsibilities of kind of large organizations. And w what do you think those, those responsibilities are, whether you're a campus, a university campus, or whether you're, I don't know, you know, making shoes or something? How would you kind of distill what you've learned about um, the responsibilities that go with you know, big campuses? 
Um, well, I think for any large organisation, there's a requirement to minimise our environmental footprint. I mean, in, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have a negative environmental footprint at all, or in, really in an ideal world, we would have a positive environmental footprint. Um, so for a large organisation, I think it's incumbent upon them to realise that we do have large environmental impacts just by virtue of scale, and then to look at what those impacts are, what, what pollution are we creating as a result of our purchases. For example, I think Trinity's annual spend is roughly 100 million euros a year and if you look at that if you break that down and look at what are we actually buying can we reduce what we buy can we reduce the volume of that which in turn has positive repercussions for the environment can we buy different products so for example instead of buying paper that's just made from forests that are cut down and turned into, into paper pulp with all the chemical and chlorine and water and air pollution that goes along with that um, can we buy paper that's made from paper, that's made from paper that you and I have recycled in the bin? That is a far less environmental impact. So for organisations to look at the um, where they're having an environmental impact, so their water consumption, their waste production, their consumption of consumables, um, their food waste, their air pollution, and see what they can redesign, how can they redesign their processes from a manufacturing standpoint to curtail that or reduce it. And from a campus um, perspective, what can we do in terms of our purchases to minimise our environmental impact? And what's the low-lying fruit? What, what, I hope, what has Trinity done? What should Trinity do next? What, you know, what are the, the five or th six things that make the biggest difference in most organisations that you've encountered? Energy consumption is the one thing everybody's been going after for the last 20 years, and, and it's great to see that. Like Organisations have huge savings to, to benefit from when they start looking at their energy use and changing light fixtures, changing um, heating systems, power power pumps and that kind of thing. And then, uh, and Trinity has actually gotten down, we've up to, we're up to 20, we've increased our energy efficiency by 26% in the past number of years. And that's substantial given that our square footage of buildings has expanded mm. dramatically. Mm. So we've done really well, that's, that's actually a, um, we've, we've kind of, we've done well and we've done well on top of an expansion of, of space. And then in terms of water consumption is the second biggest thing that people look at because most people don't realise that the second biggest user of energy in the world is water. The extraction of water, the pumping of water around pipes, even with, you know, around a city like Dublin, um, the processing of water to make it clean and drinkable and potable, and then on the tail end, the wastewater, pumping that around and treating that. So if you can reduce your water input, then you're also reducing your wastewater output and you're reducing energy use on both those sides. And Trinity has managed to reduce our water footprint by 45%. And how have we done that? Because I'm so, I mean, um, wanting to sound like we're patting ourselves on the back here. Uh, yeah. This isn't a, a Trinity fest per se, but <laughs> you know, 45% re reduction that's in water no, use is pretty, 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 pretty good, I would have thought. It is. What, have we, what have we done? What, what, what do institutions do when they want to kind of cut water consumption like that? So at Trinity, they started looking at actively looking for leaks. So they employed a particular technology, okay. I believe, that mm. went down the pipes, looked for cracks, looked for leaks. And mm. when those were replaced bit by bit over the course of a number of years, and that actually saved us almost 50% of water. And then, from, so that, that's the low hanging fruit. It was that fruit. easy, really, yeah. 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 And then mm. um, we've also gone to uh, double dual flush toilets in some buildings, so that reduces the water uh, volume as well. We've also gone to, um, we're now looking at things like labs. So we have a lab in Cocker Lab and the chemistry lab. 
we estimate that there's a water saving of 69,000 euros per year that we can make in that lab just by installing um, a closed loop cold water uh, cooling system at 21 different stations within that lab. And how much would that cost to install that system? I think it was going to be about 39 grand. Okay, so, so within eight months, payback you'd, within you'd have saved, yeah. you'd have, I should seem And that would be a cost saving every no year moving yeah. forward. Yeah. Yeah. So, so electricity, water, what else? Um, the third one I would say is waste management from a cost perspective. Mm. And it's also, it's, it's kind of easy to, to wrap your arms around. People understand what a rubbish bin is and, and recycling and all the rest. So um, to look at, because when you start looking at the waste, I think it was Henry Ford said that anything that leaves the factory as waste is lost income. And if you think about it like that in terms of resource management, that when you have something that's leaving, a banana that's gone off in your home, that's money you've spent on that banana that you are now throwing out. Mm. So if you can start curtailing, looking at the waste that you create and start curtailing that waste and fr at, the, at the front end, so not buying that bag of 10 apples because you might only get through five in the week, um, then you start saving money, but you also start minimizing your waste. How do you think, I, you know, I, I, I <coughs> work in communications, I guess, and I'm, I'm fascinated by how we can change behavior, how we can change thinking. And I, I wonder, how do you think the messaging is around the environment? I mean, it strikes me that a lot of the time we, we appeal to the head and we, we make the kind of, like what you just said about, you know, saving money and, and waste. But there's a, there's, a, there's a big kind of emotional thing that has to be touched as well before we can uh, really move forward as a society. And there are people like David Attenborough is kind of a mass example of that. And everybody who's watching him on Netflix at the moment kind of feels that. Um, how do you, and I know, Michelle, because I've talked to you in the past, that I, well, I don't know, I, I sense that you're quite emotional about this as well, that it, it really means a lot to you. Uh, do you think that the message is being sold in the right way to the public? Or do you think we should be talking about other things? I, I think it's important to make the hard connection where the environment is concerned, it's, and especially that we're in a climate crisis at the moment. And I just watched the first episode of uh, David Attenborough's Our Planet yesterday, last evening, and he was saying that um, like just the ice flows, the Arctic and the Antarctic, that they're losing their ice twice as quickly as they were 10 years ago. Like double the amount is disappearing during the summer as well as 10 years ago. So we're actually in uh, a period of acceleration of environmental devastation. And programs like David Attenborough's program really appeal to the heart because you see the, you know, some of the most stunning imagery, some of the most stunning scenery and colors and beauty. And like we live in a magical, magical, wonderful world when you look at the natural world in all its balance. Um, and that really appeals to people. And that we're actually hardwired for that. We're hard. We're, we're part of nature ourselves. Hardwired to love nature. Yeah. To respond to it. Yeah, yeah because yeah. we're part of nature ourselves. We mm. we're we're inextricably a part of nature. So to, I think it's important for us to celebrate the the beauty of nature, and that is what gives us access to the heart, because mm. who doesn't feel uplifted by walking through a, a a wild forest, or a native piece of land with wildflowers, or seeing, um, a falcon out of the blue or seeing a, a blue tit or something like that, seeing an unusual animal. We all get a little jolt of excitement when we see something wild and, and free and untamed. And what about this kind of 
catastrophist narrative because, you know, Attenborough does kind of paint a rather bleak picture at the end of well, the an truth, hour of the truth yeah, well, is bleak, unfortunately. It, it, it may be, but, but you know, I, I thought of it when you talked earlier on about the campaign for nuclear disarmament, because when you and I were growing up, and when we were in school, many people believed, not unreasonably, that the world would end in some kind of huge yeah. nuclear holocaust. It didn't yeah. happen. Yeah. Then we were told that uh, BSE would wipe out half the population of the UK and Ireland. It didn't I know, happen. Was the you know, but, I mean, Tony Blair stood <laughs> up in the House of Commons and said, the NHS is going to crumble. It will be completely overwhelmed by this yeah. issue. Yeah. And <laughs> about 300 people died in the end. And very sad for those people, but hardly, yeah. you know. It seems to me that, that uh, we keep on worrying about the end of the world and we've become tired of that. Uh, one of the things that strikes me about the environmental movement is that they don't talk enough about their successes. You know, the, the, the hole over the ozone layer from CFCs has, has actually got smaller because people have stopped making yep. dodgy fridges. Uh, rivers like the Rhine and the Danube and the Thames uh, were much dirtier 30 years ago than they are today. You know, that, that, that water can, can clean itself, that you yes. can, you can yeah. swim in these great rivers, yeah. the, the arteries of Europe. Uh, and, that we, and that's a very fine line to, to tread. Are we going to hell in a handcart? Or should we take action and believe that if we recycle that milk bottle, things will get better? What well, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the science has been showing us for the past 30 years that things are heading in the wrong direction. Uh, the World Wildlife Fund report that came out in October of last year, which I started reading in 2007, so they publish it every two years, and they gather scientific data from around the world, from ecosystems and uh, uh, ecologists, zoologists, science, you know, scientists all around the world who have been studying these populations of animals and different plant species for decades. So they've been reporting on this every two years for the past 34 mm -hmm. years. In October they said we've wiped out 60% of all mammal species in the past, I in since 1970, mm -hmm. since after I was born. That's what, 60% of all species or 60% of all mammals? 60% of all mammals. Yeah. So each mammalian species, for example... Other than the domesticated kind, other than yeah. cows. So caribou, for example, yeah. they are down by 70% mm. in the past 10, 20 years. That's crazy. No, like that's so crazy. It, it, this we have scientific data showing the trajectory that we are on. So this mm. is not um, a catastrophist prediction. This is just showing... This is reporting on what has been happening for the past 40 years, and we're on this trajectory, and it's getting worse. I wasn't so much suggesting that we aren't on a bad yeah. trajectory. I was, I was kind of more thinking about how do we change behavior, because you know, it's the same with smoking, isn't it? Um, showing a teenager uh, a kind of a coughing 60-year-old and saying, <laughs> this person is dying from cancer, doesn't really work, because they no, can't imagine themselves no. as, as that person. So yeah. it's much better to say, oh, you're going to get bad breath, and you'll never snog anyone. <laughs> it's kind of, you've got to, um, you've got to kind of, and I think the same thing is going on with society. If we, if we say we're just going to end in a huge kind of nuclear winter, yeah. people just give up and yeah. they, they think to themselves, well, I might as well party. Yeah. Whereas there's, yeah. there's got to be some hope there somewhere. Or tell me, what do you read? You know, you mentioned the, the, the World Wildlife Fund. How, you know, I, uh, what, what, what do you use to kind of keep abreast with sustainability issues? Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very modern. <laughs> yeah, I, I get yeah. a lot of uh, news from f on Facebook. World Economic Forum is a great site, mm. and they have a lot of really positive stuff. And what I love about their page is they will show the positive examples, like here are the innovative things that have happened. Permaculture 
permaculture could literally turn this world around in 10 years. Like I've, I've studied permaculture in the past. I've you have seen to explain that. I don't understand how Sorry. permaculture can, <laughs> can per- do anything. I don't even know what it is really. Permaculture, the word is coined from permanent and agriculture. Right. Um, and it's not just about agriculture. It's about good design. It's about innovative um, green design, sustainable design in every regard. So you can design cities around permaculture like Curitiba in Brazil was designed on permaculture principles, redesigned in the 70s on permaculture principles. Um, you've got the Lus Plateau in China, which is this vast expanse of land. It's got the worst dynamics or the worst statistics for any population in China. They have a life expectancy of 45, uh, terrible starvation, illiteracy rates, etc. And they, uh, the World Bank financed a project back in 1995 that they, they took this landscape that was completely devastated, had no trees, no wildlife, no nothing on it. And they used permaculture techniques to replant trees, to replant native species. And within 15 years, they transformed that from the most bleak, ugly desert into the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And the, the photos are shocking to see. In 15 years, they managed to transform it. So we have the ability to do this. We have the ability to pull things out of the out of the well, is it nature is resilient. Oh, completely. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and from the work I've done in the past, I've worked with um, an international ecological designer who has received almost every award going in, in environmental terms. Um, he, d- I've, I've seen evidence where you can design, you can take a, a, a lake that looks like it's completely dead. There was a lake that he worked with in Massachusetts and it would turn bright orange every winter because it had so much iron oxide in it. When it dropped to a certain temperature, the iron oxide would come out of solution and the whole lake would turn orange. And we actually took, took a photo from an aerial photograph and there's this orange circle <laughs> in the middle of a green landscape. Um, but he transformed that in three years. He completely changed it where they reopened it for fishing and swimming. And the, you know, the local councillors had said this will be closed forever. It'll never be used mm. again. In three years he transformed it using yeah. the tools of nature. So th- there, there are huge possibilities yeah. out there and it's a question of us um, ensuring that the policy makers and the decision makers and the corporate entities start using those technologies to repair the damage that has been done. Finally, I suppose, <coughs> what do you do in your own life, Michelle? How, how, do you, how do you kind of translate all the, all the kind of thinking you've done about sustainability and environmentalism into kind of your own actions? I mean, how, how has it changed how you live your life? Oh, well, I've just come been become completely fatalistic, so I just throw all my rubbish into the river. <laughs> 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 Poor chemicals down the drain. <laughs> no. Um, I, yeah, I find I've, I've gotten better. Like, I, I still find I'm honing my um, habits as I get older and older and as I learn more and more. So I've composted my food waste for the past 20, 25 years. Um, and I, turned, so I just composted my own what, garden. In the garden? Yeah. 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 And then I get the benefit of that and put it back into my vegetables, my vegetable growing. Um, I find now that I've, op- I've turned off the, the water tap when I brush my teeth. I've done that for years and years and years. Mm. Now I find when I'm washing dishes, I'll turn off the tap while I'm scrubbing the pot. Because right. I'm so conscious, especially mm. with the drought last summer, I was so conscious mm. that every drop was precious. Mm. Um, and that's what we're going to observe as, as time goes forward. I have a feeling we'll be seeing more drought in Ireland. So cons- um, our conservation of water is really important. Um, I also buy from a farmer's market, so I've been eating organic vegetables for probably past 25 years. 
Only um, exclusively? I mean, at home. Uh, what I yeah. purchase yeah. is exclusively yeah. organic. Yeah. And I do that deliberately for health reasons, but mm. also because um, I know the impact of the chemicals that are used in industrial agriculture. Mm. So the vegetables and fruits that I buy once in a while at Lidl or Aldi, they don't last a tenth of the time the organic stuff does. I bought a, box, a bag of um, organic uh, lettuce about three weeks ago, and half of it is still in the bag in my fridge, and there's still not one black mold... Um, slimy leaf in it like the organic stuff is really robust and so what I find is people will say it costs more to buy organic food mm. up front but in actual fact it'll stay fresh much longer so you'll actually that's very end interesting up so you reduce waste yeah. yeah yeah coming back to your kind yeah. of big picture great well listen thank you very much I hope that uh, you'll continue Michelle to look after and advise Trinity in the way that you've been doing and uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us today thanks for having me John